I serve as one of the elders here and the teaching pastor, and I get to open up our Advent series. Uh, Thanksgiving was late in uh, November this year, and so um, there's less Sundays between Thanksgiving and Christmas than in other years, and so sometimes we start the uh, the Advent series one week after this, but we wanted to get four Sundays in to be able to be focused on the Advent, the appearing uh, of, of the Lord Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas. And so this is the first of uh, four Sundays, when, and the, the theme of the series is going to be the glory of God. We want to come and see His glory. And so this morning, um, we're going to start in the prophet Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. And so I want to read the first five verses of that, and then we're going to make one gospel connection right at the beginning uh, with reading from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14. So I'm going to read from Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double, by the way, there doesn't mean that they received too much. It means they received the exact equal part, the right amount. So they, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of great Excuse me, of grace and truth. Let's pray. Our great God, yours is the greatness and the power. Yours is the glory and the victory. Yours is the majesty. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. All that we can see, all that we know, all that we've experienced is yours. We are yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted. And we pause this morning to pray, to exalt you by looking to you in prayer. We gather this morning to exalt you through our singing and through the orientation and worshipful expression of our lives and through this sermon and its application. We want to praise and exalt you. We want to thank you and we want to glorify you. And so I pray this morning, oh God, oh great God, I pray that you would show us your glory. And I pray that you would greatly empower us to live as a people who give you glory in response to that. In Jesus' name I pray. Well, to introduce the series, I want to just 
begin with the idea of, of an organizing principle. Organizing principles are important. And um, maybe just give you an illustration from driving. We have sort of an organizing principle for our driving, right? And that is that you drive on the right side of the road. That's kind of a pretty basic organizing principle. And if you travel at all, you find that sometimes have different people have different organizing principles. I was recently in a city in Asia, and the organizing principle for driving was not evident to me. I could not figure out. It was sort of chaos theory on the roads. I'm sure people who were involved in transportation there understand what the organizing principle is, but it never actually came clear to me. Um, sometimes going from one organizing principle to another organizing principle can be very confusing, right? And so in Hong Kong, they drive on the left side of the road instead of the right side of the road. And so you have to look the other direction. And so when people like me coming from places where we're, we're flipping, they, they actually tell you when you're going to cross the street which way to look so you don't look the wrong direction. And so these, these organizing principles are really important. You don't want to step out into the street looking the wrong way. You don't want to be looking left when the cars are coming from the right. And so organizing principles are important. So here's a question. Is there an organizing principle for life? What is life's organizing principle? Some people find themselves in the middle of life looking for something more to life, wondering, is there an organizing principle? Some people find they have this longing. Life may be pretty good, but there's this sense of, isn't there something more? Is this really all there is? Some people sometimes find themselves in this recurring cycle of disappointment. You've hoped in something and achieved it, obtained it, and it didn't actually deliver what you had desired. Where is real satisfaction? Where is this deep abiding sense of purpose and meaning? Now, there are plenty of people offering organizing principles for life. I recently uh, was reading the book iGen, and the writer there quotes another writer explaining how to live in your 20s. So here's, here's some thoughts from a, from a writer about your years in your 20s. She writes, these years are extremely important. You're meant to be finding out who you are and building a foundation for the rest of your life. Now, that's an organizing principle, isn't it? Who are you and what's the foundation for your life? So here's what she says. You don't want to get caught up in someone else's problems, triumphs, and failures and forget to be experiencing your own. At the, end of your at the end of the day, your 20s are the years when you do you. Be selfish, have fun, and explore the world. So there's one writer's perspective on an organizing principle for your 20s. The organizing principle is you do you. Put yourself first, be selfish, have fun, explore the world you can, I suppose, do other things later. So I, I read this this morning just to illustrate organizing principles are available, aren't they? And so people are searching for organizing principles. People are searching for sort of a theory for everything, right? Um, because we want to be able to make sense of our lives. We want to have a sense that our lives have a guiding purpose and, and have meaning to them. Well, as we gather here in church this morning... I want to say the Bible 
speaks to this most important question. The Bible offers an organizing principle for life. The Bible isn't just a book of virtues. It isn't just a rule book or an instruction manual. The Bible offers an organizing principle for life. It's a million words in this book we call the Bible, but the best summary of that organizing principle that I've come across is found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The answer to the first question is this. Our our primary purpose, what's the organizing principle? Why are we here? What's our primary purpose? Our primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Two parts to that. One is giving honor and praise to God. The other is receiving joy in response. So what they're saying here is that God's goal is his glory, which I think is a is a fair summary of what the Bible has to say about God and his glory. God's goal is his glory and his glory is our good. So that's what we're going to be talking about in this series, the glory of God. Now, the Hebrew word for glory is this word kavod, glory. It's also a word that means heavy or weighty. We use the word gravitas. A person has gravitas. There's a, there's a weightiness to, 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 to this person or to their ideas. And, and for many, when we come to the idea of, of God, the idea that God would be glorious or weighty or heavy in an individual life is a pretty foreign idea. Author David Wells observed a couple of decades ago, and it's still true now, I think. He said, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, literally light, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. So the goal for this series is to proclaim the weightiness of God, the kavod, the glory of God. I hope through these four Sundays and Christmas Eve, these five messages connect, I hope that you'll be able to know, see, and give. I hope you'll be able to know what the glory of God is, see it in the person of Christ, and give God glory in response. That's where we're going with this series. We want to know what the glory of God is, see it in the person of Christ in this Advent season, and respond by giving God glory. Now, this may for some seem as strange as driving on the other side of the road. This may seem utterly counterintuitive. This may seem like a completely opposite organizing principle for life. If one has been living in you-do-you way of uh, 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 of living. This is a this is a diametrically opposite way of living. But if if you find yourself in that place here this morning, I just want to 
thank you for being here. And I want to encourage you to really lean in and listen and keep coming back to these messages and see if what's being proposed here might not be a true and satisfying and beautiful organizing principle for life. So here's the series. Here's how it works out. Come and see. Come and see the glory of God in Christ. So this morning we're talking about definitions. What is the glory of God? Next week, who reveals the glory of God perfectly? I'm not thrilled with that title. It's kind of a Sunday school question with an obvious answer, isn't it? But how does Jesus reveal the glory of God perfectly? And then where do we see God's glory? How how does that work out in in the Advent? Seda Sakaguchi will be back from Tokyo to preach on December 15th with that message from John chapter 1. December 22nd, what is the hope of glory? What is that hope that we read about in the New Testament? And then Christmas Eve will be prepare for God's arrival, the glory of his birth from Luke chapter 2. Kenneth will be giving that sermon. So this morning, we, we want to try to get our, get our brains around this idea of God's glory. And the anchor text is Isaiah chapter 40. And verse five, let me just read this verse once more. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now, if you listen to the Messiah, Handel's Messiah, these are familiar words because this is a part of that. If you don't listen to Handel's Messiah, I want to encourage you on your commute sometime during your day while you're doing the dishes. Get that on your playlist and listen to it. It's just scripture that wonderfully exalts the advent of, uh, 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 of Jesus. And so these are familiar words. You can hear that, that, that uh, singing if, if you're familiar with Messiah. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a prophecy. It's a forward-looking statement. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now, before we look forward, first we need to understand what's happening And we need to understand what the people who are hearing this are experiencing and how they're hearing this in order for us to grasp the weightiness of this promise. So let me try to explain to you just a little bit of the background of what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. It will be relevant and meaningful to us as we we ponder the the significance of of, of verse 5 in a moment. So let me give you some background. Isaiah chapter 40 is the is the big turning point in the book. Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 are dark chapters. They are largely statements of judgment and darkness. And particularly chapter uh, 39 is a particularly sad chapter. If you read it and, and read the story there in those three chapters, 37 through 39, about Hezekiah, this wonderful and, and good and godly king who has this terrible and disastrous end to his life and the the book closes with uh, the, the chapter 39 sort of closes with this the, the the weightiness of this judgment coming upon israel and then chapter 40 in verse 1 says this comfort comfort my people out of the blue it's like the the the, the thunderstorm lifts and the, the the sun breaks through and there's this offer of peace and and your warfare is ended your iniquity is pardoned you've received all that that was needed uh, for your sins to be forgiven what's happening here we ha- you have to you have to understand and appreciate the the setting here what you what you have in front of you here in Isaiah chapter 40 you know what it is it's a sermon it's a sermon that was written 200 years before it was preached now i have a hard time getting a sermon written 2 days 
before it's preached. It's usually finished about 8.45 on Sunday morning. But this one is done 200 years early. Isaiah receives this sermon from God, and it's written down, but it's, it's a sermon, though encouraging to the people who are alive at the time. It's a sermon written for the people not in Jerusalem, but in Babylon. It's a sermon written to the people, not while they're still a country, but after they're in exile. And so he's saying, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The time of judgment is passing. Change is coming. Warfare is ended. Sin is pardoned. And then this voice, verse 2, a voice, excuse me, verse 3, a voice cries. I wonder what voice that might be. Whose voice is that? Well, here's what the voice is saying. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then there's this sort of there's this picture of highway construction, right? You've seen if you've ever seen construction going on, you know what this looks like. Make the way straight. Valleys will be lifted up. Mountains will be made low. Uneven ground will be leveled. There's this there's this imagery of this highway being created. Now, if you're living as, as one of the recipients of this sermon, this makes total sense because you're over here in Babylon, like seven or eight hundred miles away from Jerusalem. And you so you expect there's going to need to be some help to get home. And so you're hoping and looking forward to the journey home. And you know what? That's not the highway that's being described here. Those aren't the travelers that are in view here. Listen to what it says in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You know what he's saying here? He's saying it's not just the exiles who are going home. But the Lord himself is going to show up. So get ready. Make things ready for him. He says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now I want to ask you a question. What is the glory of the Lord? If you've been in church for a while, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with hearing this, this term, this, this phrase, the glory of the Lord or God's glory. Or it's one of those phrases that can be familiar but, but slippery. It's like holy. What does it mean for God to be holy? Well, glory. What does it mean for God to have glory? What does it mean to give God glory. One of the things we want to do today is we want to build a definition for the glory of God. We want to have something concrete, not just something sort of vague. And so there are a number of ways we could do this, but one way, the, the way that I'm, I'm choosing to do this today is we're going to reach into one part of the Bible that's like a, a hot spot for the glory of God. If you had a, a thermal imaging of, of, of the Bible and, and, and uh, there were hot spots where the glory of God shows up. The book of Exodus would be glowing bright red because the book of Exodus just refers to and describes the glory of God over and over. So what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to go back to the book of Exodus to try to get a, a, a sense of what the glory of God is, is all about. And then we're going to we're going to bring it forward to where we see this this glory most clearly. So I want to start in Exodus 17. We're just going to zoom through a bunch of verses in Exodus says in Exodus 17, there's this battle with the Amalekites. Moses is up on this mountain overlooking the battle. And when his hands are up, they're winning. And when his hands go down, they're losing. And so it says, when Moses' hands grew 
weary. Literally, the word there is kavod or kaved, heavy. When his hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him so he could sit down. And Aaron and her held up his hands. So all I want you to see there is this word glory, kavod, isn't always used about God. It's sometimes just a word that literally means weighty or heavy. And so Moses' hands got heavy when he held them up for a long time. Okay, that's part of the definition. There's this weightiness, this heaviness. Exodus 14 and verse 17, God speaking, he says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after so that they shall go in after them. And I will get kavod. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now, what's in view here? God is saying to Israel, you're going to go through the Red Sea you're going to make it safely. They're going to come in after you. And then their army, the walls of the water, are going to fall back upon them. And they're going to be drowned. And God says, I will get glory when that happens. What does that mean? It means that God will be honored and praised. He will be revealed to be the God who is in power. He says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. So there's a sense of weightiness we saw in the hands. Now we see a sense of honor and praiseworthiness, a sense of of giving honor and ascribing to God what is due to his name. Now, chapter 16 and verse 10, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, see, behold what they see. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Okay, we're adding to the idea here. Heavy, honorable. Now there's actually something that they're physically seeing. God is present on the scene. And this will be thematic, that when God is present on the scene in Exodus, he's present often in this cloud. The glory of God appears. They, they, they see the glory of the Lord in the cloud. I wonder what that looked like. I wonder if it was like a tornado that just stayed in one Place. There's something awesome and awe-inspiring about this. We see this cloud show up in chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. That's Mount Sinai. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, you know what's going to happen next? In that scene, we're going to come back there in January because the Ten Commandments are going to be given to Moses, who's going to be up on that mountain. In the midst of this cloud, the glory of, uh, uh, of God. It's a, it's a display of his power that's so awesome, the people are trembling at it. So there's this sense of, of presence. Listen to the words of chapter 24, verse 17. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a, okay, we're going to get a little adjustment here, like a, devour, a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Ever seen pictures of the wildfires in California or in the West or in Australia? You've seen, we're not talking about one of those little natural gas fires in your fireplace that's kind of soothing, atmosphere giving. We're talking about, listen to the phrase, devouring fire. I fought fires one summer in Oregon, and, and fires in forests are terrifying. And powerful things. And so here they are. 
the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. So I want you to see presence. God is present on the scene in this cloud. God is present on the scene in the fire. Chapter 33, Moses is praying and he says to God very simply, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. What do you suppose he will see if God answers that prayer? Chapter 34, he does answer that prayer. Listen to what happens. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, that's the word Yahweh, that's his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What are we learning about the glory of the Lord here? Well, again, presence. He's on the scene. But this time... What he's displaying is what? It's his name and his character. The Lord passed by and proclaimed. Moses heard Yahweh, Yahweh. And then Yahweh tells us what he's like. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. So, so his attributes are part of his glory being revealed in his presence in this moment. Kind of the culmination of the glory of God in Exodus comes in the very last chapter. Moses has received extremely detailed instructions for how to build this tabernacle, this sort of this tent where the sacrifices were going to be offered, where Israel was going to worship, and where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and make the sacrifice of atonement for the whole nation. And when they finish putting everything in place for the tabernacle. It says in chapter 40 and verse 34, then the cloud, notice the theme, the cloud, what is it? It's the glory of God revealed in this cloud. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And what's different here is that this glory would remain in that place. The Ark of the Covenant would become the place of the manifest presence of God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. What is the glory of God? What are we seeing here? One writer says the glory of God is the weight of all his attributes. It's all that he is, his weightiness. And and that's true, isn't it? It's his attributes. He's this God who's merciful and gracious. He's this God who's powerful and conquering. He's this God who's redeeming and saving. But you know what? That misses a big piece of this, doesn't it? What's missing from that definition? You know what's missing? Presence. Visibility, manifestation. That's what we've seen throughout Exodus, haven't we? The glory of God is the invisible God becoming visible. It's divinity on display. Let me give you a 
sort of a, a, a working definition. I've adapted this slightly from an author named Joseph Fitzmaier. The glory of God is the manifestation of his majesty in acts of power. Think about that with me. There's two parts to this. There's this invisible God becoming visible. There's this manifestation of his majesty. Something is seeable. Something is revealed. And it's, it's not just, just sort of something being made known, but it's, it's, it's God making himself known in acts of power. He's on the scene doing something. He's on the scene giving his name. He's on the scene destroying Pharaoh's army. He's on the scene revealing his nature and his call to his people in the Ten Commandments. He's on the scene in the Ark of the Covenant, dwelling amongst his people. He's present in acts of power. God isn't just out there somewhere. He isn't just an idea. He isn't just this God who's at the edges of the universe or who's who's off there watching and waiting to see what we're up to. He's this God who's on the scene. He's visible. He's manifesting his majesty in acts of power. Just want to encourage you, write that down. Think about that. Make a note of that. Hang on to that. And then read your Bible and see if that doesn't begin to unpack for you what the glory of God really is. I, as I've been thinking about the glory of God and getting ready for this series, I've, I've been having this experience where I just as I'm reading my Bible, just, just doing my daily reading, I just I find the glory of God just seems to be popping up everywhere. It's twice in my readings just this morning. I, and and, and you, you'll, you'll find that as you begin to tune into this. It's, I had this experience one time buying a car. We needed to buy a bigger car. We picked out this particular kind of van that we were interested in and had never noticed it before. But then all of a sudden it was like these vans were everywhere. Where did they come from? Well, they were always there. I just didn't notice them before. Well, the glory of God is like that in Scripture. It's all over the place. When, you, when, you, when you've got eyes to see it, you'll, I think you'll find it connects. So hang on to this definition and see how it works. Let me know how it works for you. We're going to keep working this definition. The glory of God is the manifestation of his majesty in acts of power. Now, the promise, the prophecy from Isaiah is this glory shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it. Where? When? How? Point two. Where do you see God's glory most clearly? Now, again, remember the setting here. These are people that are hearing this sermon. They're in exile in Babylon. When they hear the glory of God, if you were an, a, a Jewish person and you lived in Babylon and somebody spoke to you about the glory of God, what would you think? What things would come to your mind immediately? Well, here's what you'd think. You'd think, I know about the glory of God. I've heard about the glory of God. Back in Exodus 40, it tells us the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And you know what happened after that? Solomon built this spectacular temple where that same Ark of the Covenant was, was, was brought. And do you know what happened when Solomon built that temple? 1 Kings 8, the glory of the Lord filled that temple in the same way. So powerfully, the manifestation of his majesty there in an act of power dwelling amongst his people. And you know what happens after that? Disaster. You see, God has chosen Israel to be his 
treasured possession, not just for them, but to make them a witness to his name in all the earth. They're to be a light for the nations. And this manifestation of his presence in that tabernacle, in that temple, is intended to be something that's to be seen all around. But there's no guarantee that it's always going to be there. You got an early warning alert to this back in 1 Samuel. There's a woman who gives birth to a son, and you know what she names him? Ichabod. No kavod, no glory. Why? Because the Philistines had captured that Ark of the Covenant and taken it away. It was a disaster for Israel. No glory. The glory is gone. They were able to recover the ark that time. But there was a far greater disaster that would happen. Ezekiel chapters 9, 10, and 11. Ezekiel is a priest who's living during the time of the exile. And and you know what he sees? He has visions of the temple. And one time he sees the glory of God lifted up from the temple. And it departs symbolic evidencing that that glory departed from Israel. And then the temple is destroyed after that. So if you're an Israel, an Israeli, if you're a Jewish person, you're living in Babylon and someone says to you, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. You know what you're thinking? That glory has gone. Not there anymore. But there's some hope, isn't there? Something new is going to happen. So it's going to be revealed where, when, how. More than 700 years later, here's how. Luke writes a gospel. He describes the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes on the scene and you know what he does? He says, get ready because someone's coming. Who? The Lord. Prepare for God's arrival. And so Luke, chapter 3, Luke says, John the Baptist was in all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Can you see what's happening here? 700 years after Isaiah prophesies this, John the Baptist comes and he says, it's time, get ready for God's arrival. And the construction project, it isn't a physical construction project in the mountains and the valleys and the hills around Jerusalem. It's a heart project. He's saying, get your hearts ready. There's pride to be lowered. There's depression that you're going to be delivered from. The king is coming. Get ready. And who shows up? Jesus Christ. Then comes on the scene. Jesus begins his ministry at about 30 years of age. When Jesus comes on the scene, he fulfills Isaiah 40, verse 5. The glory of the Lord is revealed in a person. Remarkably, Christmas, Advent, the glory of the Lord is revealed in a baby. Luke chapter 2, the end of it, Jesus' parents take Jesus into the temple to dedicate him. And this man, Simeon, is there. And he knows what's happening. And he takes the baby in his arms and he says, This one will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for, listen, glory. Glory. 
to your people. Hear this. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the majesty of God. Jesus Christ is the glory of the Lord revealed. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. This is a remarkable thing. If you're a Jewish person, this is mind-blowing. The glory of Yahweh will be revealed. And Jesus comes, and everything that's supposed to be fulfilled in Yahweh is fulfilled in him. Everything that Yahweh is, Jesus is. How can that be? There's only one God. There's only one God, but two God centers. And as Jesus actually comes on the scene, we'll discover that God is triune. Never knew that before. He is everything that Yahweh is, and he is the manifestation of his majesty. Don't take my word for it. I read you the eyewitness account of John, the gospel writer, John, the disciple. He says, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his Glory, Greek, doxa, Hebrew, kavod. We have seen this weightiness of the manifestation of the majesty of God in human form. We have seen the glory of Jesus Christ, glory as of the only son from the father. Peter, eyewitness. You know what he says? He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Second Peter 1.16. What is the glory of God? It's the manifestation of God's majesty and acts of power. Where do we see it most clearly? We see it in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the living manifestation of his majesty, living out acts of power. And these next couple of weeks, we're going to be focusing on what that looks like and how Jesus is this manifestation of his majesty. But if you're, if you're tracking... With, with what the Bible talks to us about glory, you're, you're aware that right now I've given you a definition, but something's missing. What's missing? I told you that the glory of God is a, is a, is a, it's a revelation. It's a making known. It's God's presence. And that's true. But often when we use the word glory, it's about giving glory, Right? God said he would get glory from Pharaoh, from the Egyptians. We glorify God. So I want to just expand your mind a little bit to make sure that when we think about God's glory, we actually see there are two sides to it. And we'll be unpacking this again more over the coming months. J.I. Packer writes, God's glory showing requires Glory giving. Think about that. Hold on to that. God's glory showing. That's what I've been focused on so far. God's glory showing. It calls for a response. When God reveals his majesty in acts of power, it calls for a response. And so there are these two sides to God's glory. God shows his glory. People give him glory. God shows his glory. The angels give him glory. God shows his glory. All created sentient beings 
are called then to give him glory. So how, how do you respond to the glory of God? How do you do that? You can look in so many places in Scripture to find this call to give glory to God, to glorify God. Isaiah himself many times speaks of this. Isaiah 42:12. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. What does it look like to give glory to this weighty and great God? Well, to give glory means to give praise. It means to give honor. It means to worship. You know what it means? It means to make God the organizing principle of your life. That's what it means. To make much of him. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is that? That's glory giving. In response to glory showing, there is glory giving. Johann Sebastian Bach, when he would finish his compositions, he would sign them, I understand, with the letters SDG. Latin for soli Deo Gloria. Rallying cry of the Reformation. Glory to God alone. Organizing principle for life. So we have these two sides to God's glory. And again, we'll be unpacking this over the, over the, the, the weeks ahead. Glory showing and glory giving. When we see God's glory, there is this responsive adoration that it's intended to call forth from us. Are we living that way? When we see God's glory, the heavens declare the glory of God. We saw His glory, see His glory in Christ. When we see the glory of God, is there this responsive adoration in our hearts and minds, in our words and actions? The Greek word for glory is doxa. I've heard the word doxology. Logos, word, doxa, glory. A doxology is a word of praise, a word of glory giving. And so that to give a doxology, now from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's a doxology. That's a word of giving glory to the glorious God. The glory of God is the organizing principle for life. Now, this Advent season, I just want to encourage you, this is a wonderful opportunity to grab a hold of this. And I, I, I really want to encourage you and urge you to, to get glory seeing going during this Advent season. This series can be a wonderful gift to all of us so that we can see His glory. So how can we respond to the glory of God? Well, let's start with come and see. We need seeing it's the, it's the fuel for the fire of giving glory to God. So get your eyes on Jesus. Whatever you can do, whatever you have to do, whatever it takes, get your eyes on Jesus this month. There are great Advent books in the, in the bookstore. Get, get one of those. Read Luke 1 and 2. Read Matthew 1 and 2. I just, I want this, this is a battleground, December. I, we have to resist the full court press of consumerism. Shopping and receiving gifts is not a sufficient organizing principle for life, but we will be bombarded by that organizing principle for the next 24 days. 
and the rest of the year as well, a minor key. But come and see Christ. I want to encourage you these next few weeks, come early. Come ready to sing and proclaim the glorious praises of our great and glorious God. Come and see. Take hold of the Advent season. Come and be satisfied, second. John Piper has been such a wonderful writer on these things. And he says, God's passion for his own glory and his passion for my joy are not at odds. God is not an egomaniac who insists that everybody worship him because it feels good. He is truly the origin and source of all things. And all things find their purpose and meaning in being ordered around and glorifying him. So his glory is our good. His glory is our joy. The paradox of the Christian life is that it's not you do you. The Christian life is you lose you and gain Christ and you find the greatest joy possible. That's how the Christian life works. It's utterly counterintuitive. But Jesus comes and says, I've come to give you life, eternal life and abundant life. And that life is found in knowing and glorifying Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so come and be satisfied. Get your satisfaction focused on him. His passion for his glory and his passion for your joy are not at odds. Third, come and marvel. Come and marvel at the glory of God. Again, I just want to encourage you to get some fuel going for, for, for the fire. I want to just suggest read the Gospel of John sometime this month. If, you, if the embers of, of joy and glory giving have gone low in your heart, read the Gospel of John. It's the Gospel of glory. Marvel at the life of Jesus and how he perfectly displays the majesty of God in acts of power, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, walking on water. But do you know what the ultimate manifestation of the majesty of God in an act of power is in Jesus' life? You know what it is? It's that. It's the Son of God's willingness to be shamefully crucified in a humiliating fashion. And John tells us that Jesus understood that hour was his moment of being glorified. Come and give him glory for the cross and the resurrection. Let these things fill your thinking and your mind. Finally, I just want to encourage you. This is a season when we can invite others to come and see the glory of God. Invite people back for Sunday services. Invite people to talk about these things. Have a Bible study with you. Invite people for Christmas Eve. It's a wonderful season for that. One more. It wasn't on my list, but Vince has one that he wanted to uh, share with us that I think God is stirring in him too. So one other way to come and see the glory of God. As we were preparing for the meeting uh, this morning, the topic of suffering came up and we were praying for people in our midst who are suffering. And in a group this size, there are people who have health issues and relational issues, people struggling with grief and sadness and just a whole multitude of different issues that might be involved in their lives. Maybe it's a marriage or the condition of their children um, and there's a weightiness to that as well. We talked about the weightiness of God, but there's a weightiness that can be in our hearts. And the question then becomes, how do we glorify God when we are so weighed down? And there's a weightiness in our hearts and there's a sadness and a sorrow. 
And I felt like the Lord, uh, during our worship time, reminded me of Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. And I want to read it to you. It says, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And for those who are suffering, for those who are in the midst of trials, How we answer the question of how do we glorify God in the midst of that sadness and weightiness? It's actually to turn our attention back to the Lord. It's to trust in him. Because the temptation in the midst of our sadness and sorrow is to look inward or to look outward. And yet God's word clearly tells us to look upward. Because when we look up and when we stand on the rock, this is when we affirm the glory of God, his weightiness, his strength, his power, and his goodness in our lives. Amen. Thank you, Vince. So I want to ask the band to come on up. During these weeks, we hope that you'll be able to know, see, and give. Know what the glory of God is. It's a manifestation of his majesty and acts of power. To see it clearly and increasingly in Christ. And to respond by giving him glory through our songs, through our lives, through holding on to his promises in the midst of suffering. Prepare the way. The king is coming. If you need to change the organizing principle in your life, there's grace and help from God to do that. Call out to him for that help. Next week we'll be talking about how Jesus expresses the glory of God perfectly. But this morning we want to close by singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the newborn king. We're going to give him glory. And then at the end of the song, I want you to note where we sing, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Laying that glory aside, he comes to give us new life in him. Let's stand and sing to him.